uh, as we were praying tonight in the testimony time, I kept thinking I'm going to jump up and pray and then someone prayed what I wanted to pray. And then, oh, I'm going to get up again. Someone prayed what I wanted to pray. I didn't have to pray at all. I just sat there and joined with them and said, Amen. Praise God. That's the work of the Holy Spirit when he's working in the body of Christ. Well, um, as we were praying for the Sunday school and for children to come to church, I was reminded uh, of a story I told the discipleship group yesterday. When I first came here, we had few children at church and we had a Bible study running in the manse. And a lady, uh, an Irish lady, uh, Chris O'Brien, she used to come with the, well, she came, her husband didn't come to the Bible study. He was a Catholic, Edie, but a very soft-hearted man. Chris came to Bible study, and at the end of Bible study, we had a prayer time. And this lady would just pray. But she wouldn't just pray. She would go on and on and on and on. And you'd be sitting there going, come on, Chris, you know, isn't it time to close off the prayer? And she'd be praying like this. Oh, Heavenly Father, bring the children, bring the children to the church. Lord, move in the hearts of the parents and the families and the community. Oh, Lord, bring the church. She'd go on and on and on like that. And, you know, that the same prayer next Bible study and next Bible study and next Bible study. And, you know, you might like to say to her, well, you know, Chris, you've prayed enough. We ended up with a hundred children in our Sunday school. A hundred children in the Sunday school. 120. 120. No, you just can't pray enough. God loves people to pray. And that, that uh, story rebukes me. Maybe it rebukes you when someone is praying and you think, oh, come on, get on with it. Because God is listening. And what we're going to look at tonight is part of David's song of praise or prayers. We read it here in 2 Samuel 22. Remember last Sunday we looked at the first part of David's song. He offered up to God and it came when the Lord delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and particularly from the hand of Saul who had pursued him relentlessly and... David had gone through anguish, feigning madness before the Philistines and just a desperate time. And David expresses praise in that particular first portion of this section of scripture. Praise and he declares who God is to him. He says, the Lord is my rock, my fortress, my deliverer, my God, my rock, my shield, my, the horn of my salvation, my stronghold, my refuge. We might say to him, come on, David, you know, stand He's just praising God for who he is. My saviour, you saved me from violence. So God's character is the first thing in David's thoughts as he presents this song and this praise to God. And we're awakened to that. As we read this and ponder on it, we think, well, God could be my rock. He could be my fortress. He could be my deliverer. That's why the scripture is here. 
because it's presenting to us the truth about God who wants us to respond to him in exactly the same way. Remember, the Bible tells us God shows no partiality, has no favourites. But what we're going to see in the psalm as David moves on is he's looking for certain hearts. What is the state of our heart when we pray? We'll see that soon. So we saw how David had prayed. We looked at some of the prayers of David in the Psalms. I called upon the Lord in my distress. My cry came to his ears. I wet my bed with tears. Then David describes how God responded in that first part. And it was majestic, powerful. God came into action. It's like he was shaking the earth on behalf of David or on behalf of Chris O'Brien, you know, who brought 120 children as a result of prayers. Well, tonight we'll see in David's song a declaration about his own state and how this foundation was important in God's response. You know, when you read verse 21 here, he says, the Lord dealt with me according to my righteousness. Oh, there's a bold statement. According to the cleanness of my hands, he rewarded me. You know, the Bible, oh, I, I put this question. Does David's God respond to every prayer? Does David's God respond to every prayer? Well, the Bible does not guarantee answers to prayer without qualification. Rather, there are clear statements that indicate that the condition of the heart of the person praying is crucial for God to respond. Think of this in Proverbs 15. The Lord is far from the wicked, but here's the prayer of the righteous. Or in 1 Peter 3, for the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and he his ears are open to their prayer, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Or Isaiah 59, perhaps that's even clearer. In verse 1 and 2 it says, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, or his ear dull that it cannot hear, but your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you, so that he does not hear. Well, what about Psalm 24, which is one of David's? Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart and does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully, he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of God. Well, given that all have sinned 
and fall short of the glory of God. And none is righteous. No, not one. That's what Romans 3 tells us. How then is it possible to have our prayers heard and answered? Well, Paul says to us in Romans chapter 7, thanks be to God through our Lord Jesus Christ. What what is he saying? He's saying, thanks be to God that there is one through whom we can come to the throne of God for our prayers to be answered. Jesus has borne our sins on the cross and if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You know, yesterday I went to my parents' home. I felt God say, go and visit them. My wife dropped me on the Elgar Road. She was taking the car to see Maureen. And I said, just drop me on Elgar Road. It was a bit further than I thought to walk to my parents, but anyway, we got there. Um, And I got to my parents and I got in and it was just perfect timing. I walked into the the kitchen and there they're having their breakfast at 10.30. My parents are 91 and 94, if you don't know my mum and dad, and they're very frail. My mum says to me, oh, there's a carer down in the laundry from Kenya. So I thought, oh, from Kenya? Oh, I must go and see her. Lots of Kenyans who come to this country are Christians. I should just check out whether she's a Christian. So I went down there and I talked to this young lady and I introduced myself as a son of the family and got to know who she was and she'd come here and she was living in Turak with her cousin and she was working with Basque and and uh, and I, then I said, are you a Christian? She said, yes. Oh, I said, where do you go to church? And she told me and then I said, oh, that's lovely. I'm a pastor and oh, I love Jesus. Anyway, you must come and have some fellowship in the kitchen. So we came down to the kitchen and my mum offered her some coffee and she wouldn't have it at first and then in the end, she did have a cup of coffee and, and we shared together and we had a nice time. And then she went back to work. And then I was working away with my parents and doing various things and coming to the end of the time um, at my mum's desk, just fixing up some things on my computer. And this young woman comes. I think God sent you here today. I've made some bad choices and I'm mentally disturbed. I said to her, you know, Jesus loves you. He can forgive you. All you have to do is confess your sins to him. He'll wash them away. Just confess your sins and he's faithful and just to forgive you, cleanse you from all unrighteousness. And at that moment, my wife arrives at the front door. Perfect timing to pick me up. And I said, oh, here's my wife. We, we both can pray with you. So we went away and prayed with this girl. Well, I tell you what, at the end of the time, she was just beside herself. So emotional. She went out of the house as if she was jumping and leaping and praising God, I think. Because she can now pray if she confesses her sins with confidence that God is going to hear her and meet her needs and answer her prayers. And yes, 
as the writer of the Hebrews says, therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way which is open for us through the curtain that is through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. You see, we've all got consciences, and we know when we sin, it troubles our conscience, doesn't it? That's why God's given us a conscience, by the way. The the conscience is such a precious thing, and it's purified when the Holy Spirit comes to live in you. Your conscience is purified and made sensitive to God. Before that, you're all over the place, like a dog's breakfast. But once the Holy Spirit comes, he makes your conscience very sensitive. And you... God's given us that for a good reason. He wants us to confess when we've sinned and, 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 and seek the cleansing of the blood of Jesus and then boldly enter his presence with petitions and prayers and cries from our heart. So the writer of the Hebrews says, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Well, this call to draw near to God in Hebrews, in prayer, instructs us to have our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience. Why is that? Because of all the verses I read to you before. Your sins are made a separation. God's not even going to hear unless you deal with your heart. What about Jesus when he says, so if you're offering your gift at the altar, you come to worship God, you come to pray to him, you come to, and there you remember that your brother has something against you because, you know, you've done something that's been wrong. Don't even pray. Don't even worship. Go to him and put it right. Leave your gift, he says. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Because it's pointless just praying when there's something wrong. And you know of it. Well, David, here, in this particular portion of Second Samuel now, as I've read verse 21, he says, The Lord dealt with me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands, he rewarded me. Well, David's righteousness and cleanness of hands are surely in question. Adultery with Bathsheba? The scheme he concocted to have Uriah killed in the battle? Yet here he is appealing that his righteousness had afforded communion with God. How can that be? Well, just read Psalm 51 and find out how. David had prayed, have mercy on me, O God. According to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before thee. Against you, you only have I sinned. Isn't that so important to realise? Your sin principally isn't against your wife when you respond to her inadequately or inappropriately. It's against God. You have grieved him. 
Until we see this, we can't really find the forgiveness we need. Because my wife can forgive me, but she can't cleanse my heart from my stain and my sin. Only God can do that. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being. Essentially, when you pray, God is looking for truth in your heart. Are you dealing with that conscience that is troubled? Is there a a conscience disturbed by some sinful thing? Well, put it right. Deal with it like David did. Purge me with hyssop, he says, and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness at the bones you've broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew in me a right spirit. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. See, God wants us to return to him to do what? To pray. God wants us to pray. There is more teaching about prayer in the Bible than just about any other subject. God has sent his son that we might have a relationship with him. How do you have a relationship with God? How do I have a relationship with my wife? I know what she says to me. Are you listening to me? Are we listening to God? Are we talking to him? Are we taking to him all our burdens, all our troubles? Well, David goes on to say in Second Samuel 22, For I have kept the ways of the Lord. What are the ways of the Lord? No, what are his ways? I've not wickedly departed from my God. We know how easy it is to fall into sin of some kind and have that veil, that cloud. All his rules were before me. From his statutes I did not turn aside. You know, when we read those words, give thanks in all things, doesn't that convict you of sin? I'm sure it does. Convicts me of sin. Or be anxious for nothing. Are you anxious? It's sin. You need to confess it. It's wrong. It's corrupting your heart. It's affecting your relationship with God. Because if you're anxious, you're not trusting him. Is he a father who loves you? Is that what the Bible reveals? Has he promised to take care of every need that you have? I think Arnus read it from Romans chapter 8. He who did not spare his own son, won't he give us all things that we need? So if we're anxious, it's sin. And these things corrupt our hearts, don't they? They affect our relationship with God. 
And we need to humble ourselves and confess and say, Lord, I'm sorry. Please forgive me. I was blameless before him, says David. You know, the Bible is a beautiful book. It it reveals the most godly people as blameless before God. Not sinless. There's only one sinless person, isn't there? Jesus. But blameless, like Job was blameless, Noah was blameless. How were they blameless? They dealt with their sins. They confessed them and sought God to forgive them and cleanse them. That's how they lived, blamelessly before him. This is how David is living. He sinned seriously, didn't he? But we have Psalm 51 and how much blessing have you received from that psalm? I was blameless before him and I kept myself from guilt. Sin leads to guilt. Forgiveness and cleansing removes guilt, doesn't it? And the Lord has rewarded me according to my righteousness. My righteousness. According to my cleanness in his sight. With the merciful you show yourself merciful. With the blameless you show yourself blameless. With the purified you deal purely. With the crooked you make yourself seem tortuous. You save a humble people. But your eyes are on the haughty to bring them down. For you are my lamp, O Lord, and my God lightens my darkness. For by you I can run against a troop, and by my God I can leap over a wall. This God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. He is a shield. All those two take refuge in him. Well, the New Testament is full of this principle. God wants us to pray, Jesus teaches us to pray and in his prayer of course he contains that prayer forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who sin against us. To harbour unforgiveness in your heart means God's not going to listen. We have to forgive. Jesus in fact tells us specifically when you stand praying, forgive doesn't matter what people have done to you. They may have treated you shamefully and terribly, but we forgive. And then James tells us this. In James 5, he says, Therefore confess your sins to one another. I said this to my mum yesterday. I said, Oh, I had a lovely conversation with my son in Canada on Monday. He told me, Dad, I went to this new church with Haley and we went to Bible study. And Dad... They were confessing their sins and repenting in the Bible study. I said, wow, stay at that church. There are not many churches where people actually are honest enough to do this. That sounds like a good place to be. Because they're doing what the Bible tells us. Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. And James then says, the prayer of the righteous person has great power in its working. Now, where does our righteousness come from? Jesus. 
He clothes us with his righteousness when we come to him. He takes away the garments stained with sinful behaviour and practice and he washes us clean and clothes us with his righteousness. That beautiful passage in in, uh, Zechariah chapter 3 where Joshua the high priest is standing there before God in filthy clothes and God says to the angel, take it off him and clothe him with spotless garments. That's what Jesus does. When we confess our sins, when we come to him and seek not our righteousness, but his righteousness, the prayer of the righteous person has great power in its effect. And as we read tonight in James 4, what causes quarrels? What causes fights? Is not your passions that wage war among you? You desire and do not have you murder, you covet, you cannot obtain, you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. And then you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly. Despended on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world is, makes himself an enemy of God. But God is yearning, James says, over the spirit that he's made to live in us. And so he says, humble yourselves. God opposes the proud. He gives grace to the humble. Perhaps the most beautiful illustration of this is Jesus' parable about prayer in Luke chapter 18. From verse 9, Jesus tells a story to his disciples. He told this parable to people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself. That translation in NIV is not accurate, really, neither is the ESV. Uh, I went to the NASB, which is probably closer to the Greek Jesus says that he prayed to himself. That's a very, very good description of prayers where there's a pride in the heart. It's not to God at all. It's not even getting through to God. It's praying to himself. God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, I pay tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven. He was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. Jesus says, I tell you, this man went to his house justified. That means this man went righteously home. The other man was not righteous at all. That man was able to pray effectively in the position of being justified by God rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled and he who humbles himself will be exalted. That's Jesus' conclusion, teaching on prayer. Well, David in this passage has started off declaring who God is, 
But then he's recognised that the state of his heart was crucial in bringing about the answers that God has brought. The victories that God has won. Verse 21 again, The Lord dealt with me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands, he rewarded me. Amen.